And welcome everybody to Encounter Church. We're so glad that you're here joining us today. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter. And it's Sunday. It's Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday, right? I mean, it doesn't get any more celebratory than this. Uh, but first, before we kind of dig into the content of the message this morning, I'd, I'd like to acknowledge maybe two of the, of the potential awkwardnesses in the room right now. First of all, uh, the first one is one on potentially your side of things. And I just want to acknowledge this morning that if you, uh, if you are here, potentially as a result of somebody like twisting your arm and saying like, hey, come on, you got to get into church. I want to point that out. I want to say that's not, that's not like a, that's not a Jesus thing. That's not, that's not my fault. I I didn't tell anybody to twist your arm. If you heard the speech this morning, you have to go to church. It's Easter Sunday. That wasn't from me. If you got the speech, even worse, that like, you, you got to go to church on Easter. Don't make, don't make grandma upset, right? I just want to acknowledge it and say that's not how Jesus did things. Jesus did things not from guilt, but from grace, right? That it's not an obligation or a debt to pay. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity to be in his house and worship him together. Besides, if, uh, if you believe that if you believe that church is just for grandma, you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, it's just an entirely different thing. The other, the other potential awkwardness is on my end because I, I have the challenge this morning of like telling the greatest story ever told and then somehow adding to it. Like, what am I going to add? I thought like, hey, could I, just, could I just read this story and just like, amen, and sit down? And that people would probably be upset because, you know, the kids didn't time to do their craft and back. So I'm like stressed out about it. And I'm like, my wife picks up on that. And she goes, Dirk, this is sound advice for any of you. She goes, Dirk, listen, don't worry about being funny or being witty. Just be yourself. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> my dad humor is on point, okay? Um, no, so this morning, like one line takeaway out of the day, if you're wondering, you know, like what am I going to take with me into the week? It's simply this. When a story is told that has an upside as high as this one, it requires at least some looking into. Uh, just for an example, I got a, a letter, a notice in the mail, uh, maybe a couple of years ago now, and, uh, and it looked very official looking. And the letter said that uh, due to some company shadiness, uh, this organization that I had done business with um, actually is now offering me uh, a significant amount of money because I'm a part of a class action lawsuit against the company. And I thought, I don't know about this. Now, but it, it, wait, hang on. It passes the initial like smell test of the whole thing, right? So it kind of seems to suggest that like, I, I don't know, it, it, it's not a Nigerian prince who has to unload his treasure, right? Half the emails like spelled incorrectly or something. Like, plus Nigeria doesn't have a monarchy. But like besides all of that, like it passes the initial smell test. So I'm like, it requires at least a little looking into to see if maybe potentially it's I don't know, actually true. Uh, in this case, it had to do with a vehicle that my wife and I purchased uh, years back, a couple of years actually before we got that, that notice. Um, and we bought this thing because it gets uh, a great gas mileage. And, and my wife works in Ann Arbor. It's a commute. I like to remind her, this is Michigan, of course. Um, I like to remind her that it's a commute that you can actually see from space. <laughs> and we bought this car. And like, listen, everything starts to break on it. 
Like almost immediately. I couldn't, I'm not trying to like, you know, sell anybody out or anything. If you maybe like the car, it's not about that. But it's just this one particular car. Like stuff just broke. Now we admittedly put 50,000 miles on the thing in about, uh, in about 18 months. So we really drove it into the ground. The, the passenger seat, the airbag sensor thing went off. So that's always on, you know, the little light. The air conditioning stopped working. And like nobody could figure out how to get it working again. And everyone's like, I don't know. You could, you could do this for a couple thousand dollars and we could see if that works. I'm like, we could see if that works. Like, are you kidding me? Right? The check engine light was on. We fixed that with a little piece of black tape. We covered that a couple weeks ago. Uh, so that wasn't a big deal. The windshield was broken. All kinds of stuff is like broken on this car. So we get this letter in the mail, this notice that says they're going to buy the car back plus a few thousand dollars for more than we even ever bought it for 18 months before all this stuff started breaking on it. It's a deal. It sounded too good to be true. Dig into it a little bit further. It's the Volkswagen Group. You heard about the emission scandal and all that stuff. It was totally true. That was the best, worst little car we had ever owned. <laughs> and I just want to like, share this story with you this morning. It says, when a story has an upside as great as this one, when a story has an upside of God, who, as we just sang, is madly in love with you and wants to be with you for all eternity, and on top of that, he would die so you wouldn't have to. In addition to that, any one of us who believe in him and put our trust and our hope in him for the forgiveness of sins, we never have to ever say goodbye to each other because it will only ever be see you later. Because we will see each other later and God himself for all eternity when a story like this has such an incredible upside to say that God himself will wipe away all the tears from your face and there will be no more death and no more crying and no more weeping for the old order of things have passed away. Revelation 21. You have to check into a story like that. So let's check into the story and let's see what they saw from those early witnesses. From Matthew chapter 28, there's Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. We have a tradition around here that if you don't have a Bible at home or if you just like ours better, go ahead and take that with you. Uh, they disappear magically every single weekend and we love that. It's, your, it's our gift to you. Take it with you. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me. Phone-friendly church. So look it up on your Bible app as well. Now Matthew 28, it starts off in verse 1. It starts off, After the Sabbath... At dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, how'd you like to be just remembered as the other Mary? But anyway, um, they went to go look at the tomb. That's actually just the beginning of the problem for these two. Like, like as we kind of get into this, if you're going to make up a story like this, I mean, there's some preposterous claims in it, but if you're going to make up a story, the last thing that you would do is make up a story with two women as being the only eyewitnesses or the first eyewitnesses to what took place. I mean, I, I'm just saying it like it is. It was a heavily misogynistic culture. They did not count the testimony of women as being valid in a court of law. So if, like, if you're going to pitch something like a resurrection story, you wouldn't include two women to be the first two eyewitness of it unless, I don't know, it actually happened that way, right? You wouldn't want to do that, but that's just what happened. So Matthew was like, I don't know. I'm just going to write it down. Verse 2, he says, There's a violent, there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Now the guards that were there, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, 
Don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. Now I have told you. And so the women, they hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them there. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There, they'll see me. I love this picture of Mary and the other Mary. And, and, and we'll get to what maybe they were expecting and what they found in the scene in, in just a minute. But I love this picture of them like unbelievable, bewildered at what they just saw, right? The angel with the tomb rolled back and the, the soldiers there and, and they're running away to, to do what the angel told them to do. And then Jesus shows up there. And what does he say? Do you remember what the word is? Greetings. A couple of you are paying attention. Can we go to the first slides of the whole thing? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Jesus shows up and he says, greetings. Okay. But in church, we're used to hearing it like, greetings, right? Because that's like, you know, church clothes. And I mean, it's Easter. That's probably how Jesus said it, right? But no, no, no. When Jesus shows up, I love that the Greek word that's used there isn't like what we would think of as greetings, but it was more as a slang word. It was more like, hey, what's up? And doesn't it just blow your mind about this picture that you maybe have of the risen Jesus? Like the first word that he speaks to the, to the women afterward was a slang word that essentially was like, oh, what's going on? What are you, what are you looking for? Right? Like, I love that part about the story because of what it communicates about who Jesus is. Because Jesus is, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is in heaven, reigning at the right hand of the Father Almighty, right? Jesus is sitting on the throne of all of creation. I'm not discounting that at all, but I'm also saying he's also the kind of Lord who walks along next to you and says, what's up? Where are we going? Right? He's there. He's big. He's powerful. He's strong, but he's also radically close. And some of you have only known a God who is then and there and radically strong. And you don't know the Jesus who walks alongside you on the path and says, what's going on? Where are we going together? And that has nothing to do with the rest of the message. I just thought you just needed to hear that. And I just kind of spoke to me a little bit. So there you go. Well, this part of the message is the women who get to the tomb, what they were expecting and what they found we don't know exactly what they were expecting to find. Uh, we know that they went there to go uh, anoint the body of Jesus, which is a, is, a, is a powerful thing. It's a cool thing that even in death, they wanted to be near to Jesus, right? It's kind of like how we'd go to a, a, a burial plot or burial site and you might lay down flowers or you might plant something or like trim it up a little just as a sign of respect, but also to be close to the one that you lost. That's what they did then, except for they didn't do the flower thing. They did it with, uh, with spices there. Now, they had to get into physical proximity with, with the body of Jesus. So there were some barriers that they were aware of. They were aware because of the situation in which Jesus died that he's, his body was being guarded by soldiers. They knew that. They knew he was in a tomb. They knew there was going to be this massive stone rolled in the way to prevent grave robbers from taking the things in the tomb. They knew that they couldn't roll the stone away all by themselves and they'd have to ask They'd have to ask the soldiers for some help. And they also knew that the soldiers were coming off from the literal graveyard shift and might be cranky. So that was the dad humor that I referenced earlier, like graveyard shift, people. Come on, it's 1045, let's get in it, right? They, they knew these things, right? And they knew they would have to ask whether or not the soldiers would or wouldn't. They just, they were gonna give it a shot anyway. And so they went. 
and they had all kinds of things about what maybe they were possibly prepared to see. What they were not expecting to see was an angel sitting on the stone rolled away with those words that would ring throughout history. He is not here. He is risen. What? What they were not expecting to see is an empty tomb. Listen to me. Nobody, nobody was expecting no body. Nobody. And that, that's like one of those things, right? That kind of goes down in history. To say, like, if you're just kind of like looking at the evidence, the body would have been a huge, a critical part of the, of the story. And, and maybe if you're skeptical of what actually happened there. If you're going to look at the upside of this whole thing and start to investigate, maybe it's true. You'd have to start with what in the world happened to the body. Um, Jesus made a lot of friends, at least 11, and they weren't always great to him, but, but he made some friends. He made even more enemies. He made enemies out of the religious, out of the religious establishment uh, by, by telling people that they can sort of like bypass the, the religious system and go directly to God. In fact, that God made his way directly to them, to all of you. I, I mean, that like, that rocks the boat a little bit. That shakes things up, and they didn't always appreciate that in Jesus. There was a lot of people motivated uh, to hurt Jesus, uh, there was a lot of people motivated even in the secular Roman government because of the revolution they thought that he was starting and the, and the crowds that were amassing around him and they were threatened by that. He made a lot of enemies. And, and so you could understand if somebody suggests, hey, maybe when we're looking for the body, maybe it was the enemies of Jesus. Maybe it was his foes that, that took the body and like hid it. They didn't want it to become like a burial, a martyr site to be honored and to be remembered. They didn't want people to be doing these pilgrimages to where he was buried. Maybe they took the body as a way to sort of suppress and dampen the whole movement. I mean, if so, think about that for just a minute. If they actually like took the body, there would be a body to present. And as the Jesus movement gained ground almost immediately, and, and, and it all hinged, it all hinged on the central fact of a man died and came back to life. The easiest thing in the world to disprove any of that, especially if you're an enemy to the movement, the easiest thing would be to do is to present the body. If you took it, just here it is right here. He didn't rise from the dead. It's right over here. He's still dead. This whole movement is built on nothing. And so if it, wasn't the, if it wasn't the enemies or the foes who took the body, maybe it was his friends, the disciples themselves. <laughs> like like maybe, it was the, maybe it was the guy, uh, Mark, who, who was near Jesus when he was arrested, wearing nothing but like a sheet or a tunic, as they called it. And then when, when they grabbed onto it, he ran away and, and they held on to the sheet, but he ran away without it. You see what I'm saying? He ran away naked because that's how afraid he was. But maybe then a couple days later, somehow he like summoned up the courage to like go back and fight off the soldiers to steal the dead body. And then he would go on to like give his life for this cause that he knew was a sham. Then in fact, all of the disciples as they're being tortured, as their friends are dying, as they themselves die off one by one. Yeah, maybe they held on to that lie the whole time. Why in the world would they go to their deaths for something that they knew was a lie? My favorite one is maybe what happened to the body. Maybe Jesus woke up. Like maybe he wasn't dead the whole time. Maybe, they, maybe he passed out from heat exhaustion because that was the worst thing that happened on Friday to Jesus as he got really overheated. And then they put him in the grave. And then, and then the, the cold, cool air from underground the stone, it like revived him and woke him up. And he realized what happened and then walked out. And that's what happened. It was all just a kind of a misunderstanding. 
Except for like you recount the crucifixion story. I mean, this is not like unique to Christianity. There were lots of them around to account. I mean, the guy gets beat up all day on Friday. He not just passes out on the, on the cross, but the Roman soldier whose job it is to make sure that what's dead is dead hits him with a spear. His blood runs out, blood and water separate. He's been dead for a while, put him in the ground. And then he wakes up a couple days later and somehow has enough strength to roll back that stone that the women couldn't roll back that they needed help for. He has enough strength then to like, I don't know, jujitsu the soldiers away from him and like paralyze them looking like fear so that he can... Like it seems preposterous, every other explanation. And those are the lengths that we would go to because our skepticism, and I'd like all of you, like we're reasonable, we're, mo- we're modern people. And we have a hard time believing that miracles happen. I mean, that's like this central thing is whether or not the supernatural is real. Now, I, I get it. I completely understand. If it's just like, listen, I just, I don't believe that there's anything more out there than just this. And if there's not anything more out there than just this, listen, this whole story doesn't hold water. It doesn't make any sense at all. But if you could, if you could just identify that one small thing as a bias in itself, that you're either biased towards believing that miracles happen or against believing that miracles happen. And if you could just step back from both of those and say, listen, I get that they both have their bias and, and this is not something that our modern way of thinking can totally address altogether. You could just kind of step back from one bias or another and just sort of like, look at, listen, maybe it did happen, maybe it not. I don't know, like just go to the story. Like what story makes the most sense? Those other things about who took the body? What story could possibly account for what happens next? That those Freddy cat coward disciples who would all run away, who are all terrified just to go outside, huddled together in the Jerusalem apartment for fear of their life, somehow would see something or would experience something or someone that would give them such courage and such boldness to go out to the streets of Jerusalem and start preaching the name of Jesus who just died and would be so bold because of what they saw or who they experienced that they'd be willing not only to declare it publicly, but also to give their lives for the cause. What could turn someone into such a, from such a coward into such a hero of the faith other than maybe miracles happen? Maybe the story is true. Maybe they saw Jesus, after he died, and after they saw Jesus rise from the dead, suddenly dying doesn't look like the worst thing that could happen to a person. Because as Paul writes it in, uh, in Philippians, to live is Christ, to die, <laughs> to die is gain. Transitioning the disciples from those cowards to heroes of the faith because What could possibly happen to them? What could possibly separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? What could possibly go wrong if they go down serving and honoring the King of Kings? They died? No. There's life after death. One of my favorite results of something that happened is Paul himself because he was such a skeptic. He was was such a... Uh, he, he was such an antagonistic movement uh, to the Jesus group. 
I mean, he would break down doors, he'd kick down doors, he'd arrest people. He was notorious for how awful they were to the Christians. I mean, even among groups that persecuted the early church, Paul was like the guy who took it that many steps further. He was the guy that says, I'm not only going to arrest Christians, I'm going to arrest their families too. I'm going to take their kids away from them. I'm going to do all this nasty stuff, right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this whole thing because that's how zealous for this other faith I am. I'm going to stamp it out completely. And then he shows up and he's like, hey, guess what, guys? Look, I'm a Christian now. And they're on Jerusalem Church, the book of Acts records that, yeah, no, you're not. Okay, I don't, I mean, I have no problem believing that a guy rose from the dead, but Paul, nope, <laughs> can't get behind that one. And he goes, that's okay. And I, I, I believe that. You have a hard time. I will prove it to you with my life. I will go and spend my, the entirety of my life and death serving and honoring the King Jesus that I believed died and came back from the dead. Some of the Gospels were written a long time after the fact. And in fact, that's something that a lot of skeptics have maybe a hard time with because some of the Gospels were written decades after the events themselves. And so it starts to maybe lead you into thinking that potentially there was a legend that started, that this whole thing was like a misunderstanding about who Jesus was. I mean, he was just a guy that lived and died and was forgotten about. But then the, the, the legend started to grow. And every generation from one to the next, it kind of grew and grew and grew until it is what it is today. And we're like in church singing about him now. And legends, they take time to develop in a crew like that. And maybe because some of the gospels were written as far as late as they were and, and took as long as it took to write them down. Maybe that was like the legend that kind of kept on growing. Except remember that guy, Paul. I mentioned earlier, he writes a letter to the church in Corinth, Greeks now, super skeptical of all things religious in uh, Judaism, especially in Israel. He's writing to these super, uh, super skeptical Greeks, and he's writing in what even skeptical biblical scholars write is like around 50 AD. I mean, we're talking immediately after the events took place. And he's writing to these guys, he goes, no, Jesus appeared in Jerusalem, he appeared to 500 of the brothers. And like, listen, if you don't believe me, and they probably didn't, go check it out. Like, we've got names and addresses. You can go talk to their family members. I mean, we know who they are. Go talk to them, and they'll tell you what I told you. I wouldn't believe either, except I saw him. And listen, when you see something like that, it changes you from ever on. The other thing about that 50 AD, the, the letter of Corinthians, is that when Paul says that, he goes on to quote a well-known song, uh, a well-known song to them. It's a hymn that they had sung and resung, and, and it was a very simple one. It simply said that, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Presumably, it rhymes in the original language, or at least has a killer melody to it. I don't know. I'm not going to try to recompose that for you, but that was the song that was regularly sung and regularly repeated throughout. And that song was written down, was first recorded two years after the resurrection of Jesus. This is not a legend that took time to develop. This was an event that took place that immediately captured and catalyzed those first witnesses and propelled them to action to do something about it. This is the central turning point of the whole Christian story. And so if you're skeptical and you've looked into this thing before, and if you've looked into it and gone like, I have just a huge problem with the first couple being Adam and Eve and a talking snake. 
I've got a huge problem with this idea that there's a flood over the whole earth. I mean, who could have even known? I've got a huge problem with a, with a fish swallowing a man whole or the walls come tumbling down. I just don't know about any of that stuff. Listen to me. Listen. The one thing that you have to decide on today, and even for your life, isn't maybe so much all of that, not at first, but just do you believe the story, the historical event that Jesus died and came back to life? Because I believe that that guy called his shot. Like he predicted it a number of times that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get arrested. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be put in the grave. And, and on day three, day three, I'm going to rise up from the dead. And then he did. And just like on an objective level, if a, if a guy calls his shot that way, right, and says like, this is what I'm going to do, and then he does it the way that he did it, the walls come a-tumbling down is not the hardest thing to believe about this whole thing, right? I mean, if he does that, it's just, it means the supernatural is real. It means that miracles happen. It means that this entire turning point of our faith rests not, not on that stuff, but on the central turning fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the story. And if that story is true, if the resurrection happened. Anything can happen. And I find that so compelling in the church in the world today, that if the resurrection happened, as Jesus says that it happened, as the disciples witnessed to it happening, 500 other people saw it happen. Anything is possible. If Jesus was raised from the dead, it means, quite honestly, that Debbie is raised from the dead. I can tell you about Debbie. Uh, Debbie is the wife of a uh, historian, Dr. Gary Habermas. And uh, uh, Dr. Habermas made, um, no, uh, had no inhibitions about sharing his faith, about sharing the, the resurrection story with some of his students. And, uh, and he speak openly about it and said, this is what he believes and this is the hope that he has about resurrection on the far side of death. And Dr. Habermas uh, told many, many of his students about the hope that he has. And then one day he tells the story, he's interviewed by a journalist. He's sitting on a front porch of his house and he's looking off over into the distance and he's staring really at not much anything at all. And he's just kind of soaking the whole thing in because his wife was recently diagnosed with stomach cancer. And, and the only redeeming value, I guess you could say, of a horrific disease like that is that for her, there were so few treatment options available that it meant that she basically served up the entirety of her terminal illness at home as opposed to the hospital. Which brings us back to that front porch, looking off into the distance, not really looking at anything at all. He said, in that moment, I got message after message, call after call from some of my former university students who had messaged and who had called. And the theme to it all was Dr. Habermas. At times like now, aren't you glad for the hope of the resurrection? And he said, you know, the thing of it was, I was so deeply glad. Even though my wife in the next room over was losing her life. I had hope that we would be together again. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, 
then Debbie was also raised from the dead. And someday, he says, someday I would see them both. If Jesus was raised from the dead, church, it means that death is not the last word. It gets better because there are stories of that right in our community. Uh, Stories of people like Adam who looked around at the church and the hypocrisy of Christians and had a hard time looking beyond that and invalidated and discounted the entire Christian story because people like, like me mess up with such frequency. And then God met him and helped him and gave him the vision and gave him the sight to look beyond the hypocrisy of Christians like me into the heart of Christianity, which is Jesus at the center and Jesus resurrected. And the story that Adam told when he was baptized is one to simply say that despair is no longer the last word. Even beyond that, the story of Sam and his, and his struggles with, with paranoia, with addiction, with substance use and abuse. And after a while, getting past some of those things with the help of God to resurrect him new at Sam's baptism, he declares that addiction is no longer the last word. Church, and one final one that I can't even, I can't share the name of the person because of the ongoing dangerous situation and details of it all, but let's call her Alice. And Alice comes from a home. Alice comes from a background where there's so much abuse and so much hurt and so much pain and despair. It's hard to believe that anything could ever put her back together again. And accepting the invitation to try church, she came with a bunch of her friends, and I love this. I love this coming to encounter. One of her friends went back to the starting point desk that we have in the upper lobby, small plug, and grabbed one of these, uh, one of these stickers of our logo, the up-down arrow. You know, and we had a joke. We rolled this thing out and we're like, yeah, you know, hey, put it on the back of your car if you're a good driver, front of your car if you're not, right? And she goes, I don't, I don't have a car. So she goes home. She puts it on her garbage can. Thank you for that. <laughs> Anywhere else you want to phone, maybe? I don't know. Uh, no, garbage can. Somebody asked her, hey, why, why your garbage can? She said, my whole life, everybody around me has been made, made me feel like garbage, trash, worthless. The way I've been treated, the way I've been hurt, the way I've been abused. I couldn't help to think I'm anything else. I didn't put it on my garbage can because I don't like that place. I put it on my garbage can because that's the place that told me that God is madly in love with me. And every time I throw something away, I want to be reminded that in the sight of God, I'm a child and I am loved to death and back again. And when Alice is baptized, she declares, church, that pain is no longer the last word, life is the last word. Amen. If Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, anything is possible for you. And we're not done yet, but I want you to stand up where you are. We're not done yet because because these stories are great for someone else. And maybe you come in with some skepticism that maybe these stories aren't great for you. And so in just a minute, I'm going to offer a prayer. I'm going to offer a path forward. Because some of you need to know that path. 
And it's as simple as John 1 chapter, or John chapter 1, verse 12, where it's written that if you receive him and believe Jesus Christ, he gave you the right to become children of God. And I want to offer to you today that as simple as one, two, three, believe in the name of Jesus Christ, that he was who he says he was, and he died and came back to life. Receive that this story of pain not being the last word, of addiction not being the last word, of despair, of death not being the last word, receive that story as yours and become a son, a daughter of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Watch as he takes your life and shapes it into an imitation of Jesus Christ himself. We're going to pray right now and invite you, if you're ready to make that story real for you, if you're ready to believe, to receive, and become, I'm going to ask you as our eyes are closed just to simply raise a hand. Let's pray together. Let's pray together with our eyes closed and our heads bowed. God, God, many of us, we come with, with skepticism, deep skepticism about who you are. God, and maybe it's a collection of events in our past. Maybe it's an intellectual thing that we need to get over. God, I pray that, that you give us the eyes to see who you are, to believe in your name. God, I pray for this message to be received into our hearts, to accept the message of, of forgiveness of sins, of grace for the failures that we have. God, I thank you for the gift of becoming an heir to the throne, a son, a daughter of the King of Kings. God, turn us into more and more your likeness. On church, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I invite you, if, if you prayed that prayer with me for the first time or for the first time in a long time, just to simply put your hand up in the air. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to go backwards, but just put your, put your hand up in the air. Thank you. Put your hand up in the air where you are. Thank you. I see you. I see you. Thank you, Jesus, for those with the hands up right now. Thank you for them. God, I ask for, I ask for strength. I ask for, I ask for grace. God, I ask for a whole new life going out of this place. God, I ask for you to make your resurrection power real in their lives as well. Let's give a hand for those who had their hand up this morning. Amen. 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 Church, at any point during this last song, if you feel God whispering into your heart, head on over to the prayer table in the back. We would love to pray with you this Easter.